Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. We are looking at the famous last words of God recorded in the, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Now, we live in a time characterized more by new words, not so much last words. Google executive recently said this, every two days, the human race generates as much new data as was generated from the dawn of humanity through 2003. That's, that's pretty astounding. So what that means is that we can pretty much pick any topic, and most likely there's going to be new information on that topic, either to amend what we already knew or, in many cases, to completely contradict what we had thought. I know, for example, when we were parents, we were told that the safest way for children to sleep was on what? Their stomachs. That you don't dare put them on their backs. You put them on their stomachs. Well, now, of course, everybody knows, new research has shown that it's, it's better for them to sleep on their backs. Well, that, that's good to know. It's amazing our kids survived, but it's good to know that <laughs> now it's the complete opposite information. And so kind of any area you look in life, there's always new information, and a lot of it's contradicting the old information. But all of this new information, as helpful as it is, it does have a downside to it. And that is this. We are, I think, becoming less certain about how to build a life. I mean, life is a multi-decade, long-term project. And it's best to build that kind of project, not with a set of new plans every few years that contradict the previous ones. But when you're making a decision that's important, when, when do you stop researching? When your library is the World Wide Web. When you're always just one click away from new information might completely change your decision. Now, if we could just read the last, final, authoritative word on a topic and know that it would never change, well, then, then we could be more certain. We, we would know what to do. Now, thankfully, God has done that in the pages of the Bible. Now, he hasn't spoken on every topic. There's a lot of information that's out there that we can still read and learn from. But when it comes to building a life, God has told us his final word on how we need to do that. And if we will accept his words, well, then we can build a life without the fear that, say, at year 60, we'll suddenly encounter new information or look at what's been built and think, man, I built on the wrong foundation. I, I should have built something completely different than I built. Now, in the last book of the Bible, God gives us his last words on the 10 most important topics that all of us must eventually face. Today, we're going to start at the top of the list. Last week, we, we began with an introduction of what Revelation is about, but today we're going to start at the top of the list in Revelation 1 with the last word on Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Revelation begins with these five words. Chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. Jesus is not just the, the top one, the number one on God's you know, list of top tens. He is the center to the other nine topics. He is the star of this book. And he's not just the star of this book. He's the star of the entire Bible. He's the central figure of all of Scripture. And that's because, as we sang in the song just before I got up here, he is the foundation, the sure foundation, on which we are to build our lives. Now, if you read the entire Bible, it's possible to miss this, especially in the Old Testament part of the Bible, which is the longest part of the Bible. I mean, a read of the Bible can pretty easily get lost in the stories about, you know, say, a talking donkey or a floating axe head, and, or maybe the walls of Jericho that fell after the trumpets blew seven times, or they can become confused trying to figure out why are there so many laws about food in the Bible, or 
They can become bored reading through the long lists of compiled genealogies of who begat who. Now, of course, by the time you get to the New Testament, there's no missing Jesus when you read the New Testament. But after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the the four Gospels, the four records of the life of Jesus, we're back to a lot of amazing stories that may be hard to connect with the overall plot. Stories like a gold coin miraculously found in the mouth of a fish just in time to pay the temple tax, or a man being lowered in a basket over city walls to escape a mob, and on and on the stories go. So by the time you get to the last book in the Bible, it's entirely possible to be lost in all of the details and miss the fact that woven through every part of the Bible is the centrality of Jesus Christ. So the book of Revelation begins by putting Jesus Christ in his rightful place and then by putting us in our rightful place. This is where it always begins. Where is Jesus supposed to be and where are we supposed to be in relationship to him? So it begins by putting Christ in his place and that's where we're going to begin. The place that Jesus Christ has in all of reality is at the very center. That's his rightful place, at the very center. Now, to be honest, it sure doesn't look that way now. I mean, the reason is all of us have put ourselves in the center. That's the very definition of a sin. It's really all about us now, and we'll do kind of anything to make sure everything orbits around us. And God has allowed us to put ourselves in the center because, well, he created us free, created us free with the ability to build any kind of life we so choose. But freedom never changes reality. You know, a building wrongly constructed will eventually fall. You're free to build it wrongly, but it's going to eventually fall. Our eternal future is shaped by whether we dethrone ourselves in this life or whether God dethrones ourself or dethrones us in the next life. So pretending that we're at the center doesn't make it so. Jesus Christ is at the center, not us. And in the first chapter of the book of Revelations, we are given three clear images of the center and Jesus standing there. Here are the three images. The first we see in this view of Jesus is we see Jesus at the center of history. Revelation 1, 7 says, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Which means, may it be so. Every eye says we'll see him. Now Again, that's not the case now. Now it's entirely possible, in fact, likely to miss and to even ignore Christ. Now it's possible, if we do see him or consider him, to come to the wrong conclusion about him. Now, no one, almost no one, denies that Jesus was a real person in history. But most will deny his rightful place in history. That's why it says, once everyone sees him, the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Why? It's because they got it all wrong. And when they see him, they will realize, we got it all wrong. They thought he was just, well, maybe a religious figure or a good moral teacher or a complete fraud, but they were wrong. And now at the mere sight of him, they can see with their own eyes that he is, in fact, 
the central figure in all of time. It says, even those who pierce him will see this. Even those who put him on the cross will see Jesus for who he really is. They would have never done that if they had any idea of who he was. Pilate would have never washed his hands and succumbed to the pressure of the mob if he really knew who Jesus was. The soldiers never would have spit at him and mocked him and made that crown of thorns if they had any idea that they were messing with the central figure in all of history, God in flesh. They would have never nailed him to the cross. But at that point, they will see what they've done. And so Revelation is the last and best chance in the Bible that everyone has to see Jesus for who he really is, to see him now for who he is, before the entire world sees him for who he is and mourns because they got it all wrong. So who is Jesus? Here's what the next verse says, verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, says Jesus. Who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and omega is the last. This is what the New Testament was written in, the Greek language, the common language of the time. So when Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, he's not saying that, hey, I was there at the beginning, the Alpha period of time, and I'll, I'll show up again at the end, the Omega time, when it's time to wrap everything up. It's not just saying that. It's saying he is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. So in addition to being the one who was, Alpha, and the one who's to come, Omega, he is the one who is. What this is saying is he's not just the first and last letter, but every letter in between. He is the parentheses that surrounds all of time. All of time is bracketed and contains him as the central figure. So just as there is no word that can be written without using letters of the alphabet in the language that it's written, and there's nothing that can be written in the Bible or is written in the Bible that doesn't point to and find its conclusion in Christ. He's, he's the Alpha and Omega and every letter in between. He's the entire alphabet. He is the star and the plot behind every page. And the Bible isn't just one book in a sea of books that has been written. Now, it's called the Holy Bible for a reason, not because it glows in the dark at night. It's called the Holy Bible because it's different. It's, it's set apart from every other book. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart. And this book is different because it contains God's words to us, not just our words to each other. And like all books, the Bible uses the letters of whatever language it's translated into, but Every single letter and word finds its orientation in Jesus Christ. You know, even our word history points to Jesus. That's what the word means, his story. Every time we say the word history, we're, we don't know it necessarily, but we're pointing to the fact that this is all about him. So we may be reading a book, let's say, about the fall of Rome, but that, like every event on the timeline of history, will find its final place in orbit around the center of history, which is Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the way it seems to us now. But at that point, every eye will see him for who he is. So he's the center of history. He's also the center of power. Now, before I read this next section, I want to remind you of something I said last week. 
Revelation is stretching exercises for our imagination. Most of this book contains words of poetry. And if you're like me, you don't ever read poetry. So you're going to have to, like me, stretch your imagination as we look at the paintings of poetry that are described in this book. So I just want you to kind of get your minds ready, kind of limber them up. And as I read through this, I want you to do the best you can to try to picture in your imagination what this scene must have really looked like to John. We read this in Revelation 1, 12 through 16. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Notice that's in quotes. We'll come back to that. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Something else I mentioned last week is that there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and in those 404 verses there are 518 references to early Scripture what's been said already in the pages of the Bible. So what that means is we can't really understand what's being said in this last book if we don't look at the books that precede it that it's referring to. Revelation is a summary. It's a compilation. It's ten final images that reference what's already been said. Now, those who first heard this revelation first century Christians, they were very familiar with Scripture, so they immediately understood the imagery that's being talked about here. Now, the modern reader is not necessarily as familiar with Scripture, and that's why we might hear the phrase, the Son of Man, that phrase in quotes, and miss the point entirely. We, we hear that, and we think, so he's a man, but that's not what that phrase meant. At that time, everybody knew this was from a passage in the Old Testament book of Daniel, well, let me read that passage that this is referring to. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. That's already been referenced earlier in verses preceding that in Revelation 1. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, ever since this vision of the prophet Daniel, the phrase son of man had captured the imaginations of the people of Israel. Who would this be? They wondered. I mean, what, what one individual could ever possibly consolidate the power to rule over all peoples? I mean, they were living during the time of Rome, and they realized that that empire was still expanding. It didn't include everyone, but include most everyone. But who would, who would rule over all peoples and set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed? Then some 600 years later, an unassuming man from Galilee began referring to himself with these exact words. This is one of the most irritating people. The things about Jesus to the people of Israel at that time was that he kept calling himself the Son of Man. I mean, it, honestly, it was laughable. 
to them. But then Jesus began performing miracles. And in the hearts of a few, hope began to rise. Could this really be the Son of Man? Could this friend of sinners be the Son of Man? But just as the hopes had reached a fever pitch, well, then he was arrested and put on trial and crucified. I mean, his reign didn't even last three years publicly, let alone forever. But then he rose from the dead. At first, only a few hundred believed in Jesus. And then that number began to grow into the thousands. But by the time of the book of Revelation, the church, the believers, were under major attack. You know, John, the one who saw this vision and recorded it, was on the prison island of Patmos because Rome, the kingdom in power at the time, was set out to destroy the church. And so if you were a first century Christian, it sure didn't look like you were following the most powerful person in history. It sure didn't look like you were part of a kingdom that would never be destroyed. It looked like the days were numbered, that it was just going to take weeks, maybe months, maybe just a couple of years to mop up the few remaining cells of Christians, and this would be another blip on the timeline of history. And to be honest, it doesn't look that much different now. Yes, the Christian faith has grown and become a major force in the world. But from where we sit right now in this community, we're not under persecution like they were, but no one would ever walk into this place on a Sunday and say, so this is where all the powerful people are. <laughs> and we're just people. We're just normal people. With varying gifts and abilities, we're not kings and queens and presidents and captains of industry. We're we're people. So in the first chapter of the last book of the Bible, we are shown a final vision of Christ just in case we've missed it. Just in case we've stumbled over the, that humble manger birth and thought, this is nothing to look at here. Just move along. Just in case the common criminal death trips us up. Just in case we look around and look at all the small and struggling churches and the conflicts and fights that go on in churches, and we decide, you know, there's just no power here. Just in case we've missed this because of these factors, we are given one final glimpse of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. This image is to be burned in our mind and never left. This is how he really appears. You know, Jesus had humbled himself to become a man. He'd gone incognito, really, for his 33 years here on earth. And the reason he did that is so that people could freely decide about him without being knocked over, bowled over by the mere sight of him. But don't let that humble disguise fool you. We are dealing with the center of history and the center of all power. As it says in this image, his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. What does that mean? Well, this is a reference to the dream that Daniel, earlier in that book, had interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar. In that dream, all of the kingdoms of the world were set on a feet of clay. And in time, they crumbled, just as 
Daniel predicted, one by one, because they were on a feet of clay. Clay is very unstable. But Christ's kingdom stands on what kind of feet? Feet of bronze. At this time, there was nothing more stable and powerful than bronze. I mean, bronze is a combination of iron and copper. Iron is strong, but boy, it rusts. Copper will not rust, but it's not very strong. It's very pliable. You combine the two into bronze, and you get the best quality of each. The strength of iron and the endurance of copper. So what's the point that's being said here? The point is this. Kings and queens and presidents and nations and empires have come and gone. But not this king. Not this kingdom. His voice, we are told, was like the sound of rushing waters. What's that like? Have you ever stood at the edge of Niagara Falls and tried to have a conversation with someone standing next to you? I have. I mean, at first you're just captivated by the volume of water rushing over that cliff and the sound of it. And as you try to have a conversation, you realize pretty quickly, this isn't going to work. What happens at the edge of Niagara Falls is eventually you go silent before the never-ending power of that sound. That's what this is describing in poetic language. You see, now if you're going to listen to what Jesus has to say, if you're going to hear his words, you're going to have to push out all of the rushing sounds of your life in this world and sit down and focus and try to figure out what this means and how you might do this. But that's not the way it will be then. Then everyone will be silent before the words of Jesus. There'll be no side conversations. There'll be no texting. There'll be no distractions. Everyone will be silent before the words of Christ. So we have in Jesus the center of history, the center of power, and we also have in Jesus the very center of love. We see this in the description of how Jesus is clothed in this image. He is described as one dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Now, everyone in the first century reading this knew what this was. It'd be like a Huntington Beach police officer walking in, and we we know exactly what that uniform represents. We know. These were priestly garments. Everybody knew this. And just as a police officer's uniform describes the role of the one wearing it, so does Christ wearing the robe of a priest. The Latin word for priest is pontifex. Pont meaning bridge and fex meaning to make. That's what priests do. They make a bridge between us and God. But for all of their effort and all of their kindness and help and prayers, no earthly priest could ever really be a bridge to God for the simple reason that they're on the same side of the divide that we're on. Only Christ, who is both Son of Man, and what was the other phrase he used to describe himself? Son of God. Could ever be that bridge. Why is that bridge ever constructed? How is that bridge between us and God made. It's all because of his love for us. Earlier in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, we read this about him. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom 
and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. The bridge that covers the distance between our sin and a holy God is constructed in love. That's its motivation, and that is its material. It is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. His life, his perfect life, given in exchange for our imperfect lives. And if we will walk across that bridge, there, there's no being transported. We have to choose in faith to accept this bridge, walk across this bridge. Then what happens is not only are we reconciled with God, not only is the, the chasm covered between us, we now take on the role of priests like the one we follow. And we become bridges of love to those around us. As it says, we become a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Now, this love that we're talking about here is real love. Not this sentimental kind of emotion that our culture thinks love is. You see, real love doesn't just ignore what a person is. Real love sees a person for who they are. With, as Jesus' eyes are described, with eyes blazing like fire. What that means is Jesus is under no illusion about who I am and who you are. We can fool a lot of people. But not Jesus. He has eyes that burn through the facades, the hiddenness, the secrets, the pretense, and in full knowledge builds a bridge of love to us. Now, our world talks a great deal about love, but it knows very little, almost nothing of what love really demands. Jesus knows. Once we put Jesus in his place at the very center of history, at the very center of power, at the very center of love, now it's time for us to be put in our place. And this is what happens after the vision of Jesus to John. Verses 17 through 19. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. There it is, Alpha and Omega. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write there for what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. You see, once Jesus is seen as he really is, on the throne and in the center of everything, then there are two responses on our part. Now, both of these two responses will happen to everyone either by choice now or by force later. Here are the two positions. First of all, on the ground. Now, we'll get on the ground either because we kneel or because we fall. You see, to see Jesus as he really is is to automatically have all of the strength go out of your legs in the power of his presence and then, to, as John, to fall before him as though dead. Now, this does not appear to be a choice on John's part. It appears to be an involuntary response to what he saw. He just dropped like a sack of potatoes, just fell. You know, there are two ways to get down on our knees. We can kneel or we can fall. One is a choice, the other isn't. And in the end, we are told that every eye will see what what John saw. Every eye will see the Jesus who he really is, the Jesus that John saw, and everyone will get on their knees. 
And they'll be there for one of two reasons. Some will see Jesus for who he really is in this life before the end, and they will decide to kneel to him now in surrender when almost nobody sees it. The rest will fall involuntarily. And so the intent of Revelation is to put us on our knees before Jesus Christ in surrender so that his saving power can go to work in our lives now. But if we reject that option, we will find ourselves before Jesus in mourning because we didn't see him for who he is. And as we fall, there will be, oh no, oh no, oh no. And after on the ground, the next position we find ourselves in is on our feet. The order is important. And we will be on our feet again for one of two reasons, a choice or involuntary. The choice is following, the involuntary is fearing. Now, no one stays on the ground. We're all brought to our feet. We read this, Jesus placed his right hand on John, raising him to his feet and said, do not be afraid. Why not be afraid? Because all of the power of Jesus was focused on a mission, a purpose. And that was to get the keys of death and Hades. Who had the keys of death and Hades? The enemy, Satan. He's the one introduced sin into the world and with it death. He's the one that constructs the prison cells of our own making and our own choosing, but it's his design. Now, whenever you grab your keys, you do so why? Because you intend to use them, right? Start your car, unlock a door. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus defeated death. And with those keys, he's now on a mission to free us from our personal prisons of sin and eternal death. Now, why why did Jesus place his right hand on John and raise him to his feet? Why not just have John stay on the ground in humility before the power and love of Jesus? It's because there was important work to be done. Jesus had a task for John. For John, it was this. I want you to write now what you've seen. Okay, we've started where everything needs to start, with me in my rightful place and you in your rightful place. Now I have something for you to do. And it's the same for us. We don't have the same task John did, but we have a task. Once we bow, Jesus has a job for us to do, to be priests to the people around us to be bridges of God's love to them. You see, everyone will eventually find themselves on their knees before Jesus and then brought to their feet. Revelation is the last chance that everybody gets to do this willingly. And if this book and all that has preceded it is dismissed as man-made hoopla, is ignored, then when he comes with the clouds, every eye will see him. Every knee will fall and everyone will stand to be judged. Those who've already knelt in surrender and then stood to follow their Savior will hear the sound of the keys of death and Hades unlocking their prison once for all. No more struggle, no more tears, no more pain. But those who are on their knees for the very first time will discover that it's too late for that. They will be brought to their feet, but they will not hear the words that John heard, do not be afraid. They will be terrified, and rightfully so.
And in the chapters that come, we will see in vivid imagery why. And this is why the book of Revelation starts with this verse that we read last week in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. It's either near because your life is limited like mine, or it's near because Jesus may, in our lifetime, decide it's time to wrap up history. But it's near, either way. So I want to invite, as we wrap up this morning, I want to invite the team um, on stage here that's leaving for Germany this week. I want them to join me on stage. This is not all of them that are going, but these are the ones that are able to join us this morning. The reason I'm doing this is because hundreds of years ago, if you know much about German history, Jesus Christ was at the very center of German life. That's no longer the case. But among some of the college campuses in Germany, this, this is beginning to change. So we have a couple of teams this fall heading to Germany. This is the first one that's leaving to help these college ministries and some of the churches that are connected to them. And the reason we do this, they're representing us as a church, is that once we kneel and surrender to Jesus, then he says, all right, stand up, I got something for you to do. And this is just one expression of that. This is one part of the bridges of God's love to others. So I wanted to pray with you as a church for this team who's representing us in Germany as I head out this week and uh, ask you to join me in this. So let's pray together. Father, we do pray for these that are representing us and more importantly representing you and the bridge of love that you've, you've paid for with your own lifeblood. And we know that in the city of Jena, where they're going, former East Germany, this is the place where Martin Luther first translated, just shortly from there, translated the New Testament for the first time out of the Greek language into the common language. And the printing press first published your words so the masses could read them. So much was, was at the very center of German life was about you, Jesus, and that is just no longer the case. So we pray that as this team goes to Jena, that you would help them to encourage, to add courage to the small church in Jena. There are large, empty cathedrals, but this is just a small church of people who take you seriously, and there's not many of them. So we pray you would help them help this team on this college campus to direct people's eyes towards the Christ that cannot be seen now through any other eyes other than faith. We pray that you would protect them as they travel, protect them from sickness. You would help them to be a real help to the church and be of encouragement to them. And we pray that in this part of the world where Jesus is no longer the center, that he may once again be as he was hundreds of years before. And we pray now, as we have had a little glimpse, Jesus, of you, I pray you'd open up our eyes, that this image would not quickly fade from our imaginations. That as we go about our rest of our day and we go to lunch and we hang with friends and family, 
that you would continue to bring our, th our minds back to the Jesus that we will all see. Help us to reduce the number of people in our community for whom that sight will be a mournful sight. We ask this in the name of, of the one we follow, Jesus Christ. Amen.